Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. You are listening to Radio Islam, and I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Uh, tonight's program is a pre-recorded program, so if you have any comments or questions that you'd like to ask, feel free to inbox us on our Facebook page, uh, Radio Islam USA, once again. Now, Radio Islam family, you are tuned in to WCEV 1450 AM. And we are streaming live, as always, at www.wcev1450.com. If you haven't done so already, make sure that you have liked us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, that you're liking, following, all that good stuff. So uh, a little while ago, we had the pleasure of talking with Jean Hallisey. She's a documentary filmmaker who has recently finished a project entitled Sitway. Now, Sitway is the administrative seat of Sitway Township and Sitway District. Uh, it's the capital of Rakhine State in Myanmar. Uh, we talk with her about this moving documentary that she has uh, put together that forces us to look at our connections as human beings, uh, education uh, as a solution to conflict, and the urgency of people of conscience standing up and making their voices heard. We hope that you enjoy this conversation and Pay careful attention to the suggestions that Jean shares on what we can do to make things better. So enjoy, and we will talk to you soon. First off, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, the Radio Slime family is definitely going to benefit, I can say that, even before we start, just by being able to see the little bit, uh, see what I did of Sitway. So as a filmmaker... What are your main? Uh, what is your main objective? What is your main goal? Uh, because you've covered, uh, from what I've seen, you've covered a lot. Uh, there's a wide breadth of work that you do, but there seems there's a common thread of social justice and human dignity that's embedded in your work. So, is there? What is your main objective in, in the work that you do? We made the documentary film Sitway actually as a peace building tool because we think it's really effective when there's a personalized story from the ground of the real people who are being affected by conflict. Mm-hmm. And hearing from the, youth, the voices of youth and amplifying those voices was the goal that we had. And we took great pains to try to create an equal footing where we chose two protagonists. One was a Rohingya Muslim girl and one was a Buddhist boy. Both of them were 16 years old. Right. Both of them had been displaced by the violence that took place in 2012. And we weren't trying to quantify or qualify the violence because the scale of the suffering has, of course, been far greater on the Rohingya Muslim side. But it was just to try to make an equanimity of a perspective of here's two youth Mm -hmm. who have both actually been oppressed by a military government that has neglected all aspects of their lives, especially in the form of education. So the lack and denial of access to education for Rohingya Muslim has affected all of those youth. And even the Buddhist youth who live in Rakhine State are in a situation where the education system has failed them and has been completely inadequate. So we tried to use that as a common ground to create a discourse Mm -hmm. rather than emphasizing what the differences are between the two communities. What's the common ground that you share so that you can start looking at the aspirations of the future for building peace? Do you find it, well, I found it interesting that one of the things that was mentioned was that the tension began uh, when there became a a recognition of a scarcity of resources and a growing population for each group. Uh, So that being said, you find it interesting that education is not looked at as a pathway out of or or a a solution uh, because to see that so many of the Muslim youth are illiterate because in their internment camps, education only goes to eighth grade. Uh, is that a part of the conversation that, that you have seen uh, that's had uh, on the ground? Absolutely. I mean, it's important for people to step back and have a context for what has really been the setting, what has given rise to this conflict. Burma was under military rule for half a century. Mm-hmm. It was one of the most authoritarian regimes in the world. Um, with a track record of of human rights violations that were well documented by the United Nations and other human rights groups. This was a place of absolute tyranny and control. So in the emergence of the political transition that's coming out of that, people have to understand that all of those people who have lived in Burma, of which there are many different ethnic groups of different faiths, have suffered under military dictatorship. 
and Rakhine State, where the Rohingya live, is one of the poorest states in the entire country. Poor for everyone, including the Buddhists and the other smaller ethnic groups. There has been extreme neglect on the part of the central government for every aspect of their lives, economically, socially, politically, and specifically, our focus is education. So as we can see even here in the United States, what is the real discerning factor that divides people from one another? What's the underlying foundation upon which classes are separated? If you give someone an education, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, or their gender, that's an empowerment that will give them a tool that can never be taken away for the rest of their lives because it gives them critical thinking skills. It gives them the ability to have a future. It gives them the ability to have a dream of aspiration to go on to higher education or a career or whatever, but it gives them an empowerment of being in control. If you have an illiterate population or one that is very poorly educated, they're far more susceptible to being manipulated by machinations that are engineered by people in the military or other forces in the society that want to continue to have people oppressed and contained. So education, in my view, is really a key to ultimate liberation. So education in terms of being able to make a, uh, a sound assessment of your Precisely. current environment. Precisely. Uh, and to see and to gauge those problems and then to employ the collective uh, resources in a way that uplifts the people. Yes. Uh, so I think that's a that's a wonderful point. But I also would like to ask you about identity because that was yes. one of the major takeaways that that you know that, that I saw. You know the Rohingya Rakhine has is that been fostered? Uh, is that a fostered identity? Um, where how does that interplay with education? Burma is a very complex country in Southeast Asia. Um, it sits between China. Um, India, Bangladesh, and Thailand, mm-hmm. and it is a very—it's um, a mosaic of cultures. There's over 135 ethnic nationalities in Burma, with distinct uh, identities and languages and cultural practices. Many of those ethnic groups have actually been targeted um, by by the Burmese military regime over the half century of their rule, and many of them have actually taken up arms in fighting against the Burmese military. The Rohingya are one of the groups within this mosaic of ethnic groups. And historically, um, Rakhine State, which sits on the western side of Burma, bordering Bangladesh, has been, was, its, was its own kingdom. And during the British rule, there was an importation of a lot of uh, community members from Bangladesh, Bengali workers who were there as, as laborers. But they have um, existed in Rakhine State for generations. And the porous border that was never really defined until the post-colonial period didn't really have a, a differentiation between them. The kingdom of Rakhine, which is the Buddhist kingdom, was a very ancient and proud kingdom. So they're an ethnic group themselves. The Buddhists who live in Rakhine state are ethnically Rakhine as their own ethnic group. And they have a very proud and long history. What has happened is that because the military has neglected to develop this community in any shape or form, including the Buddhist Rakhine who have suffered under them, it has created an atmosphere where the people can be easily redirected to be incited toward violence. And the danger in this is that the role that social media plays, because many people in Burma do not have a computer or they will never own a computer, particularly outside urban areas There's really not newspapers. And during the Burmese military regime, it was actually illegal to own a mobile phone. Mobile phones cost about $3,000 up until a few years ago. And you had to have a a permit in order to purchase one. Since the political transition, it has opened up a floodgate where now millions of people have mobile phones. And social media has become the platform by which people get their information. The danger in this lies is that when people post something on Facebook, and if you're not somebody who's media literate, nevertheless literate in other ways, and you see a posting, you take that as news. So the the abuse of social media to propagate and incite violence and target a specific community, in this case the Rohingya Muslims, is really what has been a factor that has led to a lot of the hysteria that we're seeing now in the anti-Rohingya and what I have now described as an anti-Muslim campaign. It has spread beyond just the Rohingya communities and we now see other Burmese Muslim communities 
who are not Rohingya but are Muslim being targeted. This is a really perilous slope that Burma is right on, that's on right now. And if you're educated, you're able to discern what is factual-based, what is propaganda, or at least have some analytical skills to be able to sift through information that you see, be it on social media or through mainstream media. And that's why education, again, is so imperative. So you mentioned that the uh, targeting of the Rohingya has now moved beyond simply just as yes. an ethnic uh, category, but it's also moved towards uh, there's a religious uh, bias that's involved with this with this as well. Has this been has this been cultivated over that past fi- the, those fifty years of military uh, Burmese military leadership, or is that something that, or or is or is it simply just been exacerbated by the uh, influx of uh, the impact of social media? Burma is a remarkable place because it has. Um, a tremendous history of pluralism and multiculturalism. And in downtown Rangoon, if you stand in the center of Rangoon, of downtown area, in front of you is a beautiful uh, Buddhist temple, the Sule Pagoda. Behind you is a 120-year-old Christian church. To the right of you is a mosque. Behind that is a Hindu temple. And next to that is a Shiite temple. So it has a real history as a crossroads in Southeast Asia. It was, uh, it was at one time one of the most venerated areas for education um, in, in Southeast Asia. It had one of the best education systems. And all of this has been worn down and ground to a halt by military dictatorship. So whilst um, the Burmese Muslim community throughout the country, both in Rangoon and in other areas, have flourished in many ways in businesses, as entrepreneurs, as uh, members of society, Burma still is a predominantly Buddhist country. And it sees itself in terms of its national religion as a Theravada Buddhist country. But I think what we're seeing now is the co-opting of religion as an inflammatory emotional issue by which military can politically divide people and therefore control them because faith is is a very deeply personal and emotional issue to anybody in the world. And when you use that and convolute it to try to make people feel that their faith and therefore their identity is under siege, that's when people react. So it's completely erroneous to think that the Burmese Muslim community, or even in this case, the Rohingya Muslim community, have any plans to dominate or subsume the Buddhist culture. But but I think what needs to be seen here is what is the military's role in doing this? And if the people of Burma are not benefiting from this conflict, clearly the Rohingya are not benefiting. If the Rakhine Buddhists are also not benefiting, if Aung San Suu Kyi and her newly elected government, the National League for Democracy, is clearly not benefiting from this because they've been called to task for not responding to the Rohingya, then one must ask, who is benefiting? And that would be simply the military. I believe the military are clearly behind orchestrating and perpetuating this conflict. Now, I, what I really appreciate is uh, the fact that you situated this this story around two youth, uh, two 16-year-olds, uh, and I don't want to mispronounce her name, but I think, is it Fufu? Pew Pew. Pew Pew Pew. pew yes. Pew, okay. And, um, and the young man. Aung San Min. Aung San Min. Yeah. So these two young people who in any in many other parts of the world would be in school, yes. uh, would be looking at what, what the future holds for them. Yes. Uh, but instead, they're both in positions where their lives are affected yes. by uh, conditions that, that had nothing to do with them. Exactly. So uh, in, in stating that, have you found that there is a a attitude of uh, is there is there any hope uh, for uh, for a resolution? Is there any hope for a resolve of, of the conflict uh, as it exists today uh, from either one of them? Well, one of the tragedies that has resulted from this conflict is that there is now an apartheid system in Rakhine State, mm-hmm. and it, it can be called nothing else. Let's be very frank. It, it is an apartheid system. It is systematic segregation. And this is abhorrent. So when the conflict erupted in 2012, 
all of the Rohingya Muslim communities who had long lived in downtown Sitwe, in the, just like you have right out here in downtown Chicago, whose grandfathers and great-grandfathers, Piu-Piu's great-great-grandfather, opened up the first business. Their family had a very small shop where they dealt in, um, in grains and so forth. And suddenly you're ripped from your home and you're relegated to essentially an internment camp. Mm-hmm. You, nobody is allowed to leave that camp. Nobody is allowed to enter that camp without permission. It is guarded by the military. There is an absolute dearth of services there. But moreover, you are no longer allowed to attend school. And any aspirations that you have had for even high school, nevertheless university, are gone. Mm-hmm. So the only education that you have at your disposal are informal schools, which are not even recognized by the curriculum. And here's this incredibly bright, clever, passionate young Muslim girl who I think could do any number of things in the world if she was given the access to education. And the only thing that's going to stop her from that is what? That she's Muslim? That she's Rohingya? This is unacceptable. By the same token, the Buddhist boy also comes from a very poor family. He was orphaned when he was a young age. His auntie takes care of him and struggles to scrape together just enough to keep them alive and actually goes to a monastic school run by a monk. The only adult in our film is a monk, a true monk, Mm -hmm. not those that are espousing the kind of hatred that we've seen from the ultra-nationalist movement, but a monk that really practices Buddhism and practices loving-kindness, who runs a school for poor children. That very school where the boy goes used to be integrated. The monk ran the school for any poor child, regardless of their faith. And it just... But after 2012, all of the Rohingya Muslim kids were no longer allowed to go to that school. Hmm. So here's two kids who are both up against it, who are both challenged by poverty and um, other conditions of their family that have made it difficult, but who both have this huge potential. So if you're segregating kids that used to go to school together, that used to have, you know, largely, at least in the capital of Sitwe, there was... Um, integration. It might not have always been perfect. It was an imperfect form of integration, but it existed. There were communities that lived side by side for many generations. So why suddenly has this conflict fomented this complete absolute divide between people and the vitriol and the hatred that has created the divisiveness about the other, us and them? And this concept of us and them This concept of the other is something that we're seeing not just in Burma, not just in Rakhine State, but globally. Absolutely. As you say that, uh, and I'm sure many of our Radio Islam listeners are thinking of the similarities that have existed right here in the United States, uh, in the Jim Crow South, thinking about South Africa, apartheid, thinking about uh, uh, Israel and Palestine, um, that this continues to to play out, uh, like you said, across the globe. What I would like to also ask is, because for these people to be displaced on what, whichever side they're on, there are horrible acts of violence that have taken place um, that have led up to these, uh, to, to these people being uh, in these internment camps, to being in these refugee camps. What has been your uh, experience in documenting that, that experience? What, what can you share with us that we are most likely not going to be seeing on the news, uh, hearing about in the uh, in the papers and on the websites. We began the film um, following the violence that erupted in 2012 that led to the internment camps from the capital called Sitwe, which is why the film is called Sitwe. Right. But in fact, whilst we were uh, producing the film, the tragic events unfolded of late last year in October 2016 with the emergence of a self-described Rohingya army um, that was armed in, in by many many accounts with a sort of ragtag army, even using knives and wielding knives and sticks. But they attacked some Burmese police outposts. And as a result of that, there was a massive military operation throughout Rakhine State targeting Rohingya Muslim communities. That led to the outpouring of about um, 70,000 refugees who fled at that time. Mm-hmm. And I felt that it was important that in addition to the apartheid system we were documenting in Sitwe, that we travel to the camps in Bangladesh where these people had just fled. So earlier this year, I was there, and I saw the abysmal conditions that people were living in. There's only one officially recognized camp in Bangladesh, meaning that the Bangladesh government works with the United Nations Commission on Refugees 
refugees to have the administration of a camp. All of the other thousands and thousands of Rohingya refugees are living in so-called makeshift camps. Um, one of the camps that I had um, visited, the Kutapalong camp, had approximately 15,000 people, and it had three latrines for 15,000 people. There was open sewage water in the middle of the camp. The UNICEF staff that we met on their way out were talking about the um, propensity for the great spread of cholera, which, of course, is a a crucial issue in terms of water and sanitation. This was earlier this year prior to the human rights emergency that we are now seeing. The emergency that is now confronting the Rohingya refugees is one of the gravest human rights emergencies in the last decade. It has been likened to Rwanda. It has now been definitively called crimes against humanity and a systematic form of ethnic cleansing. The unspeakable, unconscionable crimes that have taken place against the Rohingya Muslim include the raising to the ground of over 280 villages including elders who could not walk or run fast enough to escape and soldiers threw them back into the burning fires, about mothers who had their children ripped from their arms and their skulls smashed against the trees and killed in front of them, about the gang rape of girls as young as 14 who were held down at gunpoint, had their breasts bitten, had soldiers point knives and guns at them them as up to 10 soldiers brutally raped them repeatedly. This is the kind of heinous, unspeakable human rights situation that people have fled. This is no longer a question of citizenship, ethnicity, or identity. When there is a house on fire, when there is an earthquake, emergency rescue workers do not ask the identity of the person buried under the rubble. They do not ask someone under the rubble if they have a passport. They dig and they get them out. This is the emergency that we now have to respond to. And I would like to pay particular attention to the sexual violence that has been endured by what we believe to be thousands of Rohingya women, including not women, girls, teenagers, who have endured this kind of sexual violence. The sexual violence and the repercussions of that resonate far beyond the physical act of violence itself because of the deep stigma and shame in that cultural context for those girls. It will damage them deeply and profoundly for many years to come. I'm very, you know, uh, I'm I'm very upset about this in particular, and and, and right rightly so. I think anybody listening, uh, I myself, you know, uh, as a father of three girls and of sisters, and um, I think as a human being, exactly, it, sh- it should resonate with anybody uh, that's listening to this. Um, so this ties into a really sick idea of, of rape as an act of war. Yes. Uh, and, and it's taken place, you yes. know, uh, in Africa, uh, in Sudan, doing their um, their conflict. Uh, but are, are the are the communities responding to them uh, as as other communities have by turning these victims into outcasts, where they are shunning them uh, because they have been victimized? Is, is that also taking place? That's another layer of the tragedy. Um, because of the cultural context, as I explained, and, yeah. and these communities in northern Rakhine State, where the Rohingya have fled from, they're quite conservative communities, mm-hmm. but they're also communities that have been under isolation for many years. And most of the women, including young girls, have not been educated. The illiteracy rate is very high there. So they don't have the tools. Again, it goes back to education, even informal education. So they do not have the tools to even um, find the kind of um, public health services that they need, nevertheless mental health counseling that they would need from the trauma that they've suffered. So they suffer in silence, and they suffer in shame, and this is absolutely unacceptable. Um, there has been a call. There's a special rapporteur for human rights in Burma, but there's also an office under the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is a special rapporteur explicitly for sexual violence. And there has been a call by many international human rights groups, including Human Rights Watch, to have the special rapporteur for sexual violence do an in-depth and unfettered investigation into these crimes against the young women and the uh, the, the, the teenage girls and, and the women in Burma specific to sexual violence. And I think that's something that certainly should be supported. Absolutely. Uh, there appears to be a need for a, a global education yes. uh, uh, initiative that deals specifically with 
with really expanding the, the worldview. Yes. As you mentioned, that you said that these uh, particular communities had been set, they had, they had been off by themselves. Yes. So their worldview is is you know it, it's much much different uh, than everyone you know uh, I guess than the, their counterparts. What do you what do you envision as a way to to, to stem this this tide of, of sexual violence? Is there anything that that, that you've uh, that you've thought of in your conversations and your experience that you've seen? Uh, is there a way for us to address this in a way that puts an end to that? I think that the use of rape as a weapon of war is one of the most depraved acts that we have seen globally, because it has such um, rippling effects not only upon the survivors but also upon their community and their family members, that it carries on long after the act. Um, So anything that has to do with sexual violence or rape, I think, should absolutely have mechanisms of accountability. The impunity through which this has been taking place, the acts of sexual violence committed by the Burmese army have been well documented, not just in Rohingya, communities. This has been a a tactic that they have used in other ethnic nationality communities in the conflict areas, in Kachin State, in Shan State, in Karen State, and organizations and rights groups that work with the women in those areas have released these reports. So I think that that would be a step for people to understand that it's not only the Rohingya young girls and women that we're advocating for. It's all women. And not just in Burma, as you said, this is a global phenomena that must end. First and foremost, I think that the Special Rapporteur on Sexual Violence needs to do an an education. I think that there needs to be the expansion of mental health services for the girls who have suffered post-traumatic stress syndrome and an education in partnership with the female heads of their household, including their aunties or their grandmothers or their mothers, to understand that there is no shame in them seeking the emergency public health services that they need as well as the mental health services. Many of the girls that were brutally raped also have severe health problems with vaginal tearing, uh, with infections that have happened. There were even women who were pregnant that were gang raped. So this needs to be taken care of. But beyond that, looking forward, what needs to happen is, is an outreach of informal education to all young girls and women in the Rohingya communities, and I would say globally in any conflict area, for the protection of vulnerable women to understand that they are not the ones that should be ashamed. They are not any way responsible for these depraved crimes. And moreover, we have to look at the absolute critical need to train members of the military units around the world that the depravity of this crime is an international crime, but moreover, I would say it's a spiritual crime because I think that anyone who commits these acts themselves are going to be haunted by the consequences of their acts. It's inhumane. And the inhumanity of this supersedes many other types of human rights abuses because of the specific intent behind it to humiliate and strip someone of dignity. Anyone who carries out that act must themselves be lacking dignity. You're listening to a pre-recorded conversation with Jean Hallisey about her film Sitway. Jean Hallisey is a documentary filmmaker uh, and photographer producing stories about social justice and human rights issues. She works with international non-governmental organizations, community groups, and United Nations agencies to create compelling visual stories that deliver messages with heart. You're listening to Radio Islam, and we'll be back after the break. Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. We've got more food in our country than we know what to do with. Food at the grocery store and food in the vending machines, fast food, health food, and seafood. We've got so much food that anything people don't buy, we just throw out. Yet 17 million kids in America struggle with hunger. That ain't right. Luckily, the Feeding America Nationwide Network of Food Banks has volunteers gathering excess food and getting it to hungry kids. They're kind of like food angels. Yeah, I made that up. It's kind of catchy. Hello, people. This isn't rocket science. We could solve hunger today. To start, become a food angel yourself by supporting Feeding America in your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. That's a website. Duh. 
We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. You might know me on 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. While cutting molding with a 12-inch dual compound miter saw, while holding a newborn baby in your arms, when face-to-face with a congregation of alligators, with the ball in your hands and the entire freaking season on the line. There are a million places you'd never consider texting. So why would you do it while driving? NASCAR driver Casey Kane here, asking you to please stop the text. And together, we can stop the wrecks. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Get the message at stoptextstoprex.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. You're listening to a pre-recorded conversation. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. And even though this is pre-recorded, we're still going to take a moment to ask you to like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All at the same username. That's at Radio Islam USA. At Radio Islam USA. If you hear anything that you have a question about or you'd like to make a comment on... Uh, even though you can't call in, you can still inbox us. So feel free to inbox us on our Facebook page. Uh, let us know what you think, uh, how you like the conversation. Uh, and make sure you stop by, uh, make sure that you do stop by YouTube to check out the documentary Sitway. Uh, oh, let's also not forget, uh, make sure that you subscribe uh, to the podcast so you can listen to Radio Slam anytime you like to. So before we went to the break, Jean mentioned that the human rights violations uh, in the form of rape as a weapon of war that are taking place not only in Myanmar, but in other places around the world, that these are spiritual crimes that, uh, that basically reflect an absolute lack of uh, and a detachment from humanity. So we're going to reenter the conversation at that point. Anyone who carries out that act must themselves be lacking dignity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, uh, it leads me on to the next realization is that, is that with these horrible acts of, uh, of, of defilement of the human being, uh, these sexual violence, is that there are unwanted pregnancies yes. that come along with. Uh, and that there, unfortunately, that there is, with this current uh, view, that these would be children who grow up that are shunned, yes. that are unwanted. Uh, and it goes back to, to your point that you made, that without the, the proper intervention of, uh, of education, formally or informally, yes, that there is a cycle that, unfortunately, uh, it, it, does not, it does not get broken. Exactly. So, You know, Tarek, one of the most remarkable experiences we've had, we're, this is the last stop on our, our tour with this film we've been showing it across the country and um, and having human rights discussions afterwards mm-hmm. and when we were in San Francisco we were invited to the juvenile detention facility mm. a colleague that I met um, works there and teaches there and said would you be willing to come and show this film inside the juvenile detention facility Mio Win, my colleague from Smile Education and Development Foundation with whom we made the film okay. they're an NGO that are based in Burma and he happens to be a Burmese Muslim the two of us went and it was incredible experience. So we showed it to several classes. They, the girls and the boys have different classes there. Mm-hmm. Every single young person in that facility was a youth of color. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we started the discussion, one girl stood up. Her name was Joy, and she said to Mio Win, that's our history that you've just shown on that screen. Mm-hmm. That's me 
that's my grandmother, that's black America. And the same kind of racism and discrimination and ignorant-based hatred that these people are facing is what we face here in the United States. And these kids totally got it. They had this insight into understanding the universal themes because the film is about the Rohingya, but it's also about this trend of creating separation between people and forgetting the fact of our common humanity, as you pointed out. But what's going to make the difference between that kid who's in the juvenile detention facility and the kid who's locked in an internment camp in Burma? What's going to be a deciding factor for those girls to change or alter or have the option to change or alter their situation? It's education. That's something nobody can take from you. Nobody can strip it from you. It's not something that's based on your physical environment or the material that you do have or don't have or your wealth. It's something that you hold inside of you that is the tool that is forever by your side to change your choices, to build your choices. And that's why we so strongly feel that equitable access to education for all youth, but particularly for girls around the world in conflict areas, has to be emphasized and stepped up. Absolutely, absolutely. I could not help but think about... um, present day yes. uh, Charlottesville in particular. Yep. Yes. I couldn't help but think about it when I saw there's a portion where there's a, a march going on and they're chanting. Yes. Um, uh, they're saying the Sinda or Bengalis should be called. Yes. Uh, I can't remember the exact. Bengalis. Word. Yeah. Yes. They should be called Bengalis. Yes. Uh, stripping them of their identity. Yes. Um, you know, for, from the land, you know, as, as being a part of, of Burma. Yes. You know? And, uh, you know, and I just did this automatic just so quickly yeah. the, the thoughts of uh the memories of of, of these alt-right yes uh folks walking around and and they're they don't want jews they don't want blacks they don't want you know and it's and it's all rooted it's all rooted in fear yes uh and and this idea that there is not going to be enough and what i really hope comes out of this that it's a reminder for us to see that if we use education properly, we can use education to address the things that, that disturb us. Yes. You know, and, and be proactive. Um, and lastly, I would say I would like to hear, hear your comment on, uh, you mentioned that there was one monk, the one that, that, that taught, and I believe he's the one who said that years ago we did not, we did not blame each other. You got it. He says, but now, now we blame each that's other. Cru- that's crucial. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a very thin line between Charlottesville to Sitwe and Sitwe to Gaza and Gaza to Italy. Yeah. It's a very thin line. And we are now seeing a world in which the permissiveness for hatred to rise to the top in a very vocalized manner has become prevalent. But it's really important for us to understand, as you said, Hatred is founded on fear, and fear can only flourish in ignorance. Absolutely. So the hope lies in understanding that although they have very loud voices Mm -hmm. and they beat their drums loudly, these people who propagate divisiveness and intolerance and discrimination and hatred, they are actually the minority. There are far more people in the world cultivating really good work working in the front lines of human rights, working in the front line of education, working in the front line of public health, doing community service work right here outside in Chicago, I'm sure. There are any number of nonprofit organizations that work, are working with at-risk youth, that are working with seniors and elders who don't have a lot of services. Those are the people that we need to amplify. And those are the people that we need to keep inside of our hearts and understand that is us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you one more question. How difficult was it to be able to to make this film? We faced challenges, certainly. Um, Obviously, partly because of access, because some of the areas we were filming in, we were not permitted to be there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to share with you that many of the people who helped us get access Mm -hmm. to be able to visit Pew Pew in the internment camp were Buddhist. Wow. That, hmm, once again, uh, when we reduce our actions to identity politics, 
it's very easy to say everybody that is on this side or everybody that's on this side uh, to make a judgment. When in reality, even for the struggle here, taking it back home to the yes. United States, yes. there, there have always been conscientious, uh, there have been conscientious white folks, right? Uh, abolitionists. There yes. have been people uh, who did what they could in the capacity uh, that they could to, to try to bring some relief. And it's not something, it's not something that we talk about yes. a lot. Uh, but I think in having those conversations, it allows us to see, uh, once again, our common humanity which is a, probably a lot more distressing to deal with uh, and frustrating to deal with than it is to just say, okay, if you're on this side of the line, you're no good. Exactly. Um, I mean, one would hope that people understand that the perpetrators of the violence in Charlottesville mm-hmm. do not represent the majority of Caucasians in the United States. Yes. And I think that part of what people are yearning for mm-hmm. in the United States is the moral fortitude from voices that will lead us back to that light out of this darkness. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a time that we need to revisit the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We need to reread the words that he wrote because Mm -hmm. they are as relevant today as they were when they were spoken by him. And this is the kind of light that I think we need to disseminate. And we do have the fortitude collectively And it's a mistake for us to feel that we are the minority or we are in the vulnerable position. We are not because the commonality between all the faiths, the commonality between races and ethnicities Mm -hmm. is the premise that mutual respect, compassion, forgiveness and love is the only way this world is going to survive. Well, Gene, I'll say this, and I know that our Muslim listeners will definitely recognize uh the scripture there's a uh, there's a verse which simply says uh reverence your guardian lord who created you from a single soul right Beautiful. and that goes on to say and created its mate and and from the two created basically humanity so Beautiful. this idea uh, you mentioned that it is a spiritual a spiritual element a spiritual uh, illness yes. for uh, when one human being is able to commit acts of you know just just tremendous uh, violence uh, and degradation uh, to another. There's a spiritual element to that. Absolutely. So I bring I bring us back to to that point that even in society that where we have been separated so much along these manufactured lines of, of race uh, of of uh, ethnicity, not negating. Our, our, our cultural elements, but particularly race, it takes us away from this common humanity. Absolutely. And I think the film, uh, what you've done, you've presented something that kind of slips in under the radar, especially dealing with presenting the, the, the protagonist as youth. Yeah. Um, I think that will be a part of helping us to, to, to see that, that, that commonness. I hope so. And we're hoping to connect it because we're translating the, in the detention facility that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. The youth were so moved by the film mm-hmm. and how it spoke to them as African-American, Latino, Pacific Islander kids that were in this detention facility that they spent the afternoon writing letters to the youth of Burma. And we are going to translate these letters into Burmese language and create a Facebook page where there can be a public forum for youth in Burma to respond to them because it was so profound. And the fact that they saw that trajectory, they saw no difference Mm -hmm. between themselves and Pew Pew or themselves and Aung San Myung, they got it. And that's why I think youth are, are in my my heart, the ones that I want to work with because they're not weighed down with all the other other concepts and – you know, biases that we have the more that we grow older. Um, you know, they kind of like cut through the chase. They cut to the chase, you yeah. know. Um, and that's the kind of empowerment that I want to expand. I hope that we can, when you get that Facebook page up, that you could share that information with us because we definitely would love to. Well, I'd love to read you one of the letters. Oh, can please, I read you one? Please, please. Yeah, I've got one. Yeah. Because um, I actually just, um, give me a second. I, ha- I should have it right here. Here's, here's an example of one of the letters. It says, Dear Burmese Youth, My name is T2. I live in San Francisco, California. That's in America. Right now, unfortunately, I'm, I'm locked up. I just watched the documentary Sitwe, and it was very alarming. 
A lot of people here didn't know the problems you guys were having, but now we see. I'm African-American, so I've been told that white people don't like us. But as I got older, I realized everybody has their own opinion, and you can't dislike a race or any group of people based on one person's doing. I think you guys must be really smart. People here in America take a lot for granted and don't take a lot of the opportunities we have. My, what I want to say to you is keep fighting for your education. Hold your head high. Learn as much as you can and be that change that you want to see in solidarity with love, T2. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Pretty amazing, huh? Yeah. T2 gets it. Yeah. Yeah. That connection is still open. That's what we're, that's what we're striving for, Tariq. So what can our listeners do? What, what can they do to, because what you just mentioned, I think, was really critical uh, prior to the, um, to the uh, letter, was that we're at, a, we're at a space now where the minority mm-hmm. are so vocal, yes. they're so loud. As a matter of fact, uh, Jim Rohn, a uh, famous uh, motivational speaker, he said that there's only about six or seven really bad people in the world. They just move around a whole lot. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh. Um, and just a message for us that as a majority, yeah, a silent majority facilitates the actions of that vocal minority. Yes. So this is a critical point in time, I think, globally, Absolutely. not just here in the United States, but globally yes. for people of conscience to, uh, to, to raise their voices. So how can uh, – do you have any, any tips, any asks of our audience – things that they can do to raise their voices so that they're not fading into the background? I would say in terms of helping the Rohingya Muslim crisis, yes. I would ask your audience to go to the Burma Task Force website and see the work that they're doing and advocating on behalf of these people. They're based, they have an office right here in downtown Chicago, and there are some um, actions that they can take in terms of writing to legislators mm-hmm. and writing to the U.S. State Department to ask for targeted sanctions against the Burmese military. But that's not always something somebody feels connected to do. And it's not always something a listener might really feel comfortable doing. So what I would urge listeners to do is look outside your window. Draw an imaginary line with your finger of a 100-yard radius around the place where you live and find any organization or any community group or any church group or faith-based group or masjid or after-school program or a training center that might need a hand. Part of why people feel so overwhelmed in the world is because they don't feel like there's anything they can do about it. Mm -hmm. But actually, you can. Everybody's on this earth with a gift. Everybody has a skill or talent that you might not even know is cherished or can contribute to changing someone else's life. So go out in the community, get engaged, get involved, even on the smallest scale. People volunteer not because they help others. Mm -hmm. People volunteer because it solidifies your internal power to understand that you are an agent of change. And that's what I would urge people to do. The door. No. Yeah, because they're... Can you close that? Yeah. Thank goodness for editing. (laughs) 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 But we are are live right here. (laughs) Uh, That's... uh, yeah, that that is so poignant, so and so true. Um, uh, the, the volunteerism, giving something, yeah, giving something back, uh, and and we have no idea how that is going to play into how it's going to become a part of the solution. Yes, but it definitely is, um, and and doing nothing certainly is not exactly. Yeah, so um, this isn't can, a time to do nothing, Tarek. No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Jenny. This is a time to do something, something. Yeah, something, something's <laughs> got to be done, and right? everybody's got to do their part. And you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, all you have to do is just, just you know, there's all kinds of resources you can find or ask somebody. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of places that need your help. Yeah. Could be youth. It could be seniors. You know, it could just be visiting someone. You know, a visit to someone who lives alone can make the difference in the world, you know, and that's going to make you feel more powerful, that you're part of something. Yes. You know, it, we, we are us. There is no us and them. There's just us. 
and you're part of us. So we got to all step up and and be us. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I'm I'm partially sad because I know that our listeners are listening to this after you have already uh, uh, shown the documentary and had the talk here. Right. But um, but I've got to ask: Are are there going to be or are there online yes uh, resources? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so anybody who has a library card in the United States can mm-hmm. access our film through Canopy. It's K A N O P Y. They're the distributor, okay. and they just uh, entered into a new deal across the United States with the public library system that the library will download their films. So anybody with a library card can now log on to Canopy and get any kind of, and not just Situate, there's incredible documentaries they've got up there. And documentaries are a great way to also open up your mind and, uh, you know, jar some thinking. So I would encourage anybody, and if you don't have a library card, you got to get one anyway, not for Canopy, because that's <laughs> that's as, a, as an important, I always tell my students, the two most important documents you'll ever have in your life mm-hmm. is a passport and a library card. Amen because both of them open up the world. That's right. <laughs> I got both. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tarek. It's Thank been a pleasure. You. And I wish all of your listeners uh, lots of peace and, and courage to go out there and do something. Yeah, and we pray for your continued success and the vital work that you're doing. Many thanks. Uh, because, once again, education. This is, this is a major, this is a major uh, initiative. And so, you know, we pray that God continue to bless you in all your work. Thank you. Masalam alaykum. Salam. Thank you. All right, Radio Islam family. Our show has come to an end. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation with Jean Hallisey. Uh, and we hope that we will see some of you this weekend at Waterford, uh, Waterford Banquet and Conference Center in Elmhurst for the Sierra Conference going on this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, tonight's show has been produced, uh, engineered, and hosted by yours truly, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer, as always, is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And our engineers, we thank our engineers over at WCV for doing a great job for us, as always. And we look forward to seeing everyone, or hearing everyone, uh, nice and alert, Monday night at 6 p.m. So we're going to leave you guys as we greeted you. Have a great weekend. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.